by now you have confirmed that the first days are the hardest days. Or you'll confirm that later in this retreat. <laughs> and what I mean by that is it's, it takes some adjustment to uh, arrive here fully. Uh, the body may get here Friday night, the mind gets here about Monday morning, <laughs> and uh, mindfulness slowly starts to emerge tomorrow. <laughs> Just to be, you know, starts to be apparent tomorrow. We're working at it. But in the meantime, uh, the habits of our mind that we're not able to satisfy in our usual way of distraction and busyness and self-medicating or self-meditating or whatever it is we do to handle and to keep ourselves entertained are not available to us here. And so inevitably we suffer with and we, we indulge in, we get caught up in sleepiness, restlessness, anxiety, self-judgment, judging others, doubt, fear, anxiety, and there's many more. And this is normal. <laughs> you know, lest you think that you're not doing it right, if you're experiencing any of that and more, that's normal. This is to be expected. Because these are the habits of the mind. We have learned to kind of hide from them as best we can by our, you know, strategies for handling, uh, you know, difficulties in life. But when we come here, we don't have them. We don't have our cell phone. We don't have our friends. We don't have our neighbors. We don't have our uh, chosen office enemy. <laughs> we don't have <laughs> anybody. You know, it's like, this is it. And so we have to look at them. And if you have been noticing any of these very difficult and unpleasant mental states today, you're doing really well. You're doing really well. That's what, this is what the present moment is, so much of these early days. And if you weren't experiencing any of these, I'd say you're probably not practicing well. So, how are you doing? <laughs> doing really good, huh? Yeah, right, okay. Um, so I want to talk about these uh, habits of mind that we have that are that, that appear so intractable and they're so ordinary and they cause us so much distress. They're known in the Pali language, the language of the Buddha, as kalesa. And kalesa is what torments the mind. So we could call them torments. These are the torments of our life. That sounds appropriate, doesn't it? <laughs> They're tormenting. They torment us. What the Buddha said of these torments, he says, the mind by nature is radiant and pure. It is because of visiting forces known as kalesas that we suffer. It is because of visiting forces, forces that visit the mind, that cause us to suffer. So all of this suffering that we have enjoyed today, 
or have tried to avoid or have reluctantly taken notice of uh, was caused by a visitor to the mind. Someone, some, some state of mind came knocking on the door of your mind, you let them in, or they found a way in, and then they uh, set up house and make a mess. <laughs> they don't own the house. They're not part of the house. They're not your mind. They're not yours. They just arrive due to causes and conditions which we don't understand yet fully. And because we don't understand them, we don't, we don't see how it is we get entangled in them. And we get ambushed by them. And even though we're trying to pay attention, they still somehow arrive in the mind and we suffer. So, if you remember, as we have been coaching you in awareness, which is remembering to recognize the present moment's experience and having a right or a skillful attitude of mind that is interested in the present moment. Not expecting anything, not trying to create anything, not trying to get rid of anything, but just interested in whatever shows up. That's hard to do when it's so unpleasant, when it's causing us so much distress. Yet, that is the challenge that we all face. How to make the adjustments in our expectations, in our life, in our activity, that instead of acting out impatience, frustration, disappointment, anger, we turn to it out of interest and inquire, what's the nature of this mental state? What are the conditions that give rise to this mental state? What do they do to the mind? And how does the body feel when the mind is filled with this mental, visited by this mental state? And what do we have to do to see to the end of this mental state? Because as Sayadaw Utejaniya acknowledges, it is not you who removes these torments. It's not you who removes these torments. Wisdom does the job. It's pretty clear from our experience these first few days that as much as we'd like to be free of impatience and self-judgment and irritation and anger, we can't. We can't command this mental state to leave, these mental states. We'd like to. We, 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 I'm sure you've tried everything <laughs> to, to put aside some of these obsessing activities of mind. And they are not amenable to willful intention, for the most part. And so Sayadaw is reminding us, it's not you who removes these torments from the mind. It's understanding them that will. So what I want to acknowledge is that this practice that we're doing here, insight practice, is the practice that leads to purification of our understanding. Sila, keeping the precepts as we do here, purifies the intention of the mind before speaking and acting. Okay, so we purify our intention of 
hatred, and aversion, and desire, confusion, before we speak and act. And it conduces to purifying those behaviors, those activities, so that we don't cause harm to one another. That gives us the experience or lays a foundation for the experience of happiness or harmony in our interpersonal relationships. If we in the world could do that, suffering would go down a quantum leap. And if you read that, you know, I will remind you that nothing different has changed in the newspaper. <laughs> it is still a catalog of people not keeping the precepts. <laughs> it's the daily dose of acting out unskillfully, right? I mean, that's, that's it. And even if we can, as we do here, watch our speech, watch our behavior, be very considerate of others in not doing anything that will cause them harm. And we do that here. We live in relative harmony, and yet we still suffer. We suffer, suffer with the obsessing of the mind that would like to do what we're restraining ourselves from doing. <laughs> <Right? laughs> and so, you know, I'm talking about the three trainings of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path. Sila is the purification of speech and behavior for the happiness of living in harmony. The obsessing mind is arrested, subdued by mindfulness. Now, you might say, yeah, but I'm practicing mindfulness. <laughs> my, my obsessive mind isn't subdued. Well, there's a certain continuity of noting, noticing these mental states. If we're caught in them, and this is a visual teaching here, in my left hand, here's the object, and on my right hand, here is awareness. So if our awareness is lost in this obsessing, Clearly, we're suffering. But as soon as we're able to remember to recognize what's going on, oh, there's an awareness of this state of mind. So rather than being, rather than having the narrator on the inside say, I'm so angry, we say, oh, this is, I'm so angry, and this is, oh, anger is being known. Okay, if we can do that with some continuity, a moment of awareness is, not, is, is a wholesome moment. Even if what we're aware of is anger, or frustration, or disappointment, or greed, or lust, or the awareness is free of that. And so when we cultivate the continuity of mindfulness, then we enjoy purification, the mind purified of these kalesas, even though we may still be aware of them. We're not entangled in them. So this purification of mind comes about through the continuity of mindfulness. And when you get a taste of the momentum, meaning the continuity of mindfulness, and the mind is temporarily freed from these obsessive states of mind, it is a great relief.
even if it's just you know for a few minutes or five minutes or at some point during the sitting where you just have an easeful non-obsessing awareness of whatever's going on that's called seclusion of mind the mind that is secluded from the obsessions and the 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 benefic- the benefit of it is tranquility and calmness and that's a subtler kind of happiness than uh, harmony but it also is a more enduring uh, stability of mind this continuity of mindfulness but nevertheless even if we can be quite mindful moment to moment there are times when we lose it <laughs> you've noticed that too I'm sure and the Buddha offered a third training in the Noble Eightfold Path called insight or vipassana that is to purify our understanding we default to these obsessive states of mind because we misunderstand the nature of reality we misunderstand what's actually going on when these visitors enter the mind we take them to be personal we take them to be effective ways of relating to the world with desire with aversion with fear I mean it's reasonable isn't it to be angry at certain conditions in the world or to be afraid of certain conditions in the world that seems reasonable we all learn it and yet it's because we have a misunderstanding or many misunderstanding layers of misunderstanding about the nature of these obsessing and about the nature of this thing that we call me so it's insight practice that is going to purify those misunderstandings and when we do that which is being defended that which is being which is acting out that sense of self that is so obsessed is so tormented by the obsessions is seen through we purify our, our understanding of this delusion this basic delusion that it's all about me that's not easy to do but that's that's the goal or that's the task or that's the process of insight vipassana is to purify our understanding and that's what we're doing here and so to purify our understanding we are going to have to see these obsessions we're going to have to uh, open to them and to spend time with them in order to learn their nature and as we learn their nature we will learn the nature of this thing called myself and it's this correcting the misunderstandings that is going to free this mind from that suffering so these torments are as you know these very habitual reactive states of mind when we get averse uh, caught up in desire confused bewildered impatient the interesting thing about them is that they are all rooted in delusion or ignorance all of them now what that means is we either don't know what's going on and we've all had that experience today 
Remember when you sat down, and with all good intentions, we're trying to stay present and recognize the emerging present moment. And breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, spacing out. (laughs) And we're gone. And while we're gone on this space journey, uh, we don't know where we're going. (laughs) We don't know where we've been. We don't know our age, our gender, our posture. We don't know the time of day. We don't know if we like what we're thinking about or not, or where it's going to end. We have no idea. We are completely ignorant. Right? There is no... I mean... Right? And, and this is when we try hard to be aware. <laughs> Just think if we weren't trying hard to be aware. <laughs> okay. But luckily, you know, somehow that train of thought comes to an end. And instantly, without even trying to, oftentimes we can remember everything we just thought about. (laughs) We can reconstruct the whole crazy loop of sequence of images and thoughts. So some part of our mind was paying attention and some part of our mind was not. Awareness was not. Perception was. But this is called ignorance, delusion. And while we're deluded and we're lost in that kind of thought, we might think, yeah, but hey, what's the damage? I, I, didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't, I didn't act out. I was just kind of lost in thought, daydreaming, or you know, just kind of spaced out, you know, fantasizing and stuff like that. Right. We're not acting it out, but what we're doing is reaffirming over and over all of the mistaken beliefs that we have within our heart and mind. And so at the extent that we space out, we reaffirm deluded misunderstandings of the world. Okay, so we have, have we spent more time reaffirming the delusions or arresting those delusions today? That's the question, huh? Okay, so, but sometimes, as we will notice here, we are mindful. We, we, we begin to be more mindful, and we're aware of what's going on. We're aware we're sitting, we're aware we're breathing in, we're aware we're doing this. We're aware we're looking at different people, we see the meal, we, we eat, we know, we, know. We, we have more awareness. We're not totally ignorant, but we're deluded. And what this means is we see what's going on in this moment, but we understand it wrongly. And what that means is, you know, when aversion arises in the mind, Whatever we look at, whether it's a person, a food, a piece of furniture, the sunset, if aversion enters the mind, all we see is the negative or the unpleasant characteristics of that object. That's what, that's what aversion does to the mind. It's like putting a filter over the mind so that all you can see, all you will recognize of that object is its unpleasant characteristic. Later, when the mind changes, as it will, and desire enters the mind as a visitor, you can look at that same object and all you can see is the pleasant aspects of it. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It, the object hasn't changed at all. Same object. And yet, when aversion's in the mind, we see it unpleasant. When desire's in the mind, we see it as pleasant. So we mistake, we mistakenly 
misunderstand or we misunderstand the nature of the object due to these, this kind of delusion. And all of these obsessions, obsession, obsessing, obsessions, uh, are accompanied or rooted in ignorance or delusion. Okay. They're also fueled by restlessness, meaning restlessness in this case, and the way that we use the word restlessness in uh, looking at the mind is, it is the think, the incessant, rampant thinking that we're unaware of. It's the mind that's just wandering here, wandering there. It's just, it's just, it's just, well, it goes where it wants, doesn't it? And we're not aware of it. That's restlessness. Yeah. And so what, what, what I'm saying is that all of these obsessions, all of this obsessing is done, fueled by ignorance, delusion, and restless thought. Do you notice every time you get upset, you have a lot of thoughts about it? You can always, you always have a story about it. It's not like it's no story. Well, you might, you might think there's no story initially, but as you feel your way into it, you'll see there's a story. We have this narrative and it always involves me. (laughs) We never have obsessions about other people. (laughs) They got their own, but we're always obsessing and it's always got something to do with me. Okay. So it's rooted in uh, ignorance, delusion, fueled by restlessness, and often accompanied by either desire or aversion. Good luck. <laughs> Bummer. Okay. So when we, when we, I mean, and we know the varieties of, of desire, you know, just uh, fascination, curiosity sometimes, uh, uh, lusting, uh, desire, wanting, yearning, expecting, anticipating. These are all forms of Desire, attachment. Aversion, different gradients of aversion. Sometimes there's a striking out kind. We just get angry and raging and fierce. You know, the mind is striking out at someone, something. You know, you come out and try to start the car and the car doesn't start the batteries. You get out and you slam the door and kick the tires as if the car is responsible somehow. That's, that's anger. And we do that, hatred, rage, anger. But sometimes we have a, a, a version that pushes away, pushes the unpleasant experience away out of irritation, impatience, uh, fear, complaining, whinging, whining. And then there's the internalized forms of aversion that I spoke about earlier, depression, Frustration, disappointment, despair. The interesting thing, or the, the, the sad situation about this, is that these, these, these suffering states of mind are so habitual, and they recur so frequently, we take them for granted as who I am. We no longer see them as a momentary visitor to the mind. They have arisen so often, we can, off, we can say, we can we see i'm impatient now oh, i'm impatient again impatient again impatient again and it doesn't take much before you start thinking geez i'm always impatient that that's my impatience in my I, I wasn't born with an impatience gene i mean with a patience gene so i have a lot of impatience or it arises frequently and so it's easy for me to say 
I'm always impatient. That's my default setting, is impatience. And from there, it is just a quick, slippery slope to, not only am I always impatient, I'm an impatient person. For you, it might be depression. I'm depressed. I'm depressed. I'm depressed. I'm always depressed. I'm a depressed person. What's dangerous about that is that when we get this identification, self-identification as a depressed person or a, an impatient person, a lustful person, a fearful person, that idea really gets stuck deep in the mind. It's an idea. It's a misunderstanding. But still, it's an idea that we've grabbed onto, we believe, it's been reaffirmed over and over again, and every time it arises, we reaffirm it again. Yeah, see, here I am again. The angry person, the fearful person, the depressed person. So they're so habitual, we get identified with them, we, obstruct, we take them on as, uh, as my, ourself, but they obstruct our practice. I'm sure you've seen that when you're obsessing in any of your favorite default obsessings, me. You can't practice. You can't practice well at all. Try, but man, the, the, those, those forces are so powerful that they obstruct, they hinder our practice of, of mindfulness. And not only that, they um, keep us from living a full life. Just take fear. We all experience fear. There's some things to be fearful of, of course. You know, uh, dangerous situations, that's appropriate fear. But so much of our fear is imagined. It's like, what if? And we can imagine all kinds of things. What if? You know, financially, uh, career-wise, interpersonal relationship-wise, health-wise. What if? And because of that fear that we don't see and we're totally identified with, we don't live to the fullness of our potential. And so we, we cut off all kinds of opportunities, options, possibilities in our life out of fear. And we start living in a smaller and smaller and smaller, narrow range of what is safe and acceptable for me. And the mind gets tighter and tighter and tighter. That's sad situation, but it's true. And fear is one, and there's many others that limit our capacity, opportunity to live the fullness of a human life. Unless you think desire is the opposite of fear, and desire is wanting more and more and more and more, it too has its limits in keeping you from feeling content, Satisfied, at ease, tranquil. Okay. But these states of mind don't arise haphazardly. They're not an accident. They arise due to causes and conditions. They are part of the Dharma. They're not outside of the Dharma. And because they are part of the Dharma, and because they are an experience, an object or an experience that can be known by mindfulness, they can be understood by wisdom. And this is the key. If we can know them by mindfulness and understand them with wisdom, 
This is the path to freedom from them. Okay, you get it? Danger. These, this, is our, this, this is our work. You know what? If we didn't have these obsessing states of mind, we'd be done the journey. So, get used to them. Meaning, as long as there's some obsessing or some habit of mind arising, we still have work to do. As soon as there are no more arising, we're done. Finished. The mind is purified. Okay? So, you, I mean, it's not like... I mean, we do get moments of relief. Thankfully, you know, we do get moments of relief. When the mindfulness is strong, they're kept at bay temporarily. That's good. And as the insight deepens, we do thin out. We do correct our misunderstanding. We see things as they really are. And we, every time we see the way things really are, truly understand this is the way it is, then we weaken the mistaken beliefs within our heart and mind. So we're, we're, we're on the path. You know, all of your mindfulness is, is attempting to and will in time arrest these obsessing. And as you observe them to learn about them, you will gain in knowledge and this insight, these insights will weaken your mistaken beliefs and assumptions about them and about yourself. <clears throat> so, how do we work with them? You know, I, I, I didn't have to really spend a half hour convincing you <laughs> that, that these are present most of the time. But I wanted to be clear so that you can have some understanding, right view, how to understand these states of mind. They're not who you are. They're visitors to the mind. They arise in this way. This gives us a lot of clues as to how to work with them. But the first is that we have to hear about them. Because if you're just brought up in, you know, your family and your culture and, you know, you have that conditioning, you will act that way as if this is the best way to be. We don't have any other option. We, we, we're going to be the way we are taught. Yeah, we all come in with a kind of a, a mental legacy that includes some predisposition towards irritation, anger, frustration, desire, whatever. But nevertheless, what we learn in our life from our parents, from our society, deeply imprints us and we act in accord with that for the most part. But once we hear that oh, this, is, <laughs> this is the source of your suffering for those who are willing to wake up, uh, then we have to do something about it. Now we can recognize them. We know, I mean, we, we feel the suffering of these obsessions even before we hear the Dharma, but we often don't know what to do about them. We take them for granted. We believe them. We, we think they're part of ourselves. But now that we've heard, no, they're not. They arise due to causes and conditions. They're visitors to the mind. They're not yours. They're not who you are. They're not an inherent part of you. Okay, now you can recognize them. Now we know the words. We know the words fear. We know the word desire. We know the word aversion, irritation, impatience. But do you know the experience? Okay, so the first challenge for all of us is to recognize them when they arise. So, when the mind today was off in la-la land, which obsession was it hanging out in? Which visitor had arrived at the door? Which visitor did you let in 
Was it desire? Was it fear? Was it anxiety? Was it planning mind? Planning mind's a good one. What, what, <laughs> planning, planning is not the problem. We need to plan in life. We need, to pl- we need to plan a lot of stuff in life. But what's the fuel of your planning? Is your, are you planning in order to get something in the future that you want, desire? Are you planning in order to avoid something in the future that you don't want to experience? Aversion? Oh, so we look beneath the planning and we see, oh yeah, the fuel is something else. Okay, so just recognizing this state of mind is, is a challenge enough because we're so used to them. We just take them for granted. Or we take them for granted. Or now that we're practicing, as soon as they arise, we just bat them out of the way and kind of get back to the breath. Thinking, there, nuke it, boom, okay. Get rid of that. You can see what that does. Nuke it is what? Aversion? Yeah. Or we judge it. So recognizing it is, is the first step because we need to own it. We need to, psychologically, and they're using the psychological term, we need to own this experience. We need to acknowledge, you know what? In conventional language, I am really angry. I'm really frustrated. I'm really disappointed. I'm really, whatever, whatever, humiliated, shame, whatever. Because sometimes we just overlook it. We just can't open to the fact that I am this way. I feel this way. And I don't want to say I am like you really are, but conventionally speaking, that's what we would say. And the interesting thing about practice is that when we, when we encourage you to recognize, remember to recognize the present moment, we often ask you, well, w- what did you recognize? Because if you can name the state of mind that you're experiencing, it immediately gives you some distance from it. We can be lost in it. We may know that we're angry. We're so angry. But we're not mindfully aware of it. And as soon as you can recognize, oh, anger has arisen. Desire has arisen. Lusting has arisen. Whatever it is. Then, ah, you can put a name on it. And as soon as you name it, you get a little space around it. You're not quite as obsessed. Okay? So naming it, labeling it, is a way to begin the disidentification, the process of disidentifying with it. And there was some studies done some years ago now where psychologists studied the ability of people to label their emotions and if they could label their emotions, they were less entangled in them. I mean, this is what we're doing. Less entangled in them. But as soon as we own <laughs> these states of mind, usually we want to deny it. As soon as we see, oh, I really am angry, then we want to deny it. Or we get exercised about it somehow. We get uh, judgment. We judge, we judge ourselves. We, we feel ashamed that we're doing that or whatever. So the second step after recognizing is to relax. Relax your judgment about recognizing the state of mind. Because so quickly we jump in with a judgment, which is just another form of aversion. You know, we beat ourselves up for recognizing, 
which is good, recognizing a state of mind which is unwholesome. Okay, so rather than being identified with the unwholesome state of mind, maybe we could recognize the wisdom or the skill or the benefit of the awareness of it. (coughs) So actually when you recognize, oh, I'm recognizing this unwholesome state of mind, you should congratulate yourself rather than beat yourself up. Now that's counterintuitive, isn't it? But that's really what's required is to relax and just say, you know what? It's better that I know this is happening than that I don't. Because if you don't know it's happening and you're just acting it out, you're just strengthening it. It just gets stronger and stronger. But when we can see it, when we can recognize it, exercise some, whoa, don't, don't judge yourself for it. Just relax, acknowledge it, bear with it. Because as I have said earlier, Sainte says, the mind is not yours. His mind is not yours. These states of mind erupt with great volatility, don't they? They just come upon us like... It's not like we have to stop and think about whether to get angry. (laughs) It's it's, it's just there. Or you see something you really want. You don't have to stop and think about, do I really want that? It's like, you want it. You know it. So the mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it. And you can see that once these states of mind arise, if you can recognize them and own them, you relax, then you can responsibly respond to them. If you don't recognize them, we act them out. So we want to be careful not to just struggle to get rid of it, to just immediately kind of deny that it ever appeared, and just but rather to relax. So we recognize these mental states, we relax around our judgment about them. The third step is to exercise some restraint because the tendency is to act them out. We know that if we're uh, impatient, we just do something to express our impatience. If we're angry, we do something to dump our anger on somebody else. And then we feel relief. Ah, oh, there. Temporarily. Or if we're caught in desire, we buy something, there. Or we act out that desire, satisfy that, there, get rid of that. We didn't get rid of it, we just strengthened that habit of the mind. So exercising restraint means that we don't act out whatever it is. Now, here you might think, well, what am I going to do here to act out? You know, somebody's bothering you in the hall, go outside, go to the bulletin board, get that little piece of paper, write this little note, would you please, Meta. <laughs> That's not meta. You sign that anger, right? But hey, got rid of that. Okay. So we, we can act out here too, just as well as we can act out outside of retreat. But it's a little more obvious. Okay. We may not have quite as many creative outlets, but still we find a way. So to, to understand that we need to exercise some restraint, and we do that by remembering that these states of mind cause suffering. If we act them out, not keeping the precepts, then we cause harm to others and ourselves. Okay. That's, the, that's really an act of compassion. To exercise restraint is an act of compassion for yourself and for others, not to act out in a way that causes harm.
there's a few things that you can do, and uh, many of us have taught, and many of us have practiced, uh, practicing loving kindness when you feel anger, practicing forgiveness when you feel uh, blaming, when you're blaming someone, practicing renunciation if you feel a lot of desire, or practicing what's called the super practice, recognition of the unbeautiful aspect of what you desire. Or just, you know, the 12 step, the 12 step mantra of just don't go there. <laughs> you know, just avoid it. You know, there's this famous poet, I don't remember her name, I heard her on Terry Gross one time, speaking, reading her poem, and she, in, in this poem is a line, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood, don't go there alone. <laughs> and what that means is, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. There is danger lurking in the mind, and if you just go wandering around carelessly, you can, you'll be visited by some dangerous states of mind. So take your mindfulness with you. Take that companion that can recognize what you're seeing, what you're experiencing, can recognize the present moment, can recognize the danger when it appears. So your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go there alone. Avoid those situations. Avoid those people. Avoid those behaviors that are more likely to induce unskillful thoughts, behavior, speech, as a way of exercising restraint. If you know that you just can't avoid taking seconds of dessert, even though you don't need it, you can avoid. Avoid the dining room. Get your one dessert, leave. Yeah? Don't wait around just in case. Just to test, just in case there's some left. You don't want them to have to save it for somebody else. You know, there's, we, The mind is insatiable in its ability to rationalize anything. Our capacity for self-deception is immense. I hope you've seen that. Okay. But the fourth step in working, once we recognize this unwholesome state of mind, this unskillful state of mind, and we've relaxed our self-judgment about it, and we've exercised some restraint so as not to act it out and cause harm to others or ourselves, then we need to reframe our understanding. And to reframe our understanding means that usually when we're feeling angry, irritated, frustrated, disappointed, caught up in desire, whatever. We think, I got to get rid of this in order to practice, in order to be mindful. I got to get rid of this experience so that I can then get on with my practice. That's total wrong understanding. This is the very place. This is the very experience that's occurring in the present moment upon which to establish mindful awareness. It's hard because we're caught up in it. And what mindfulness is asking us to do is to recognize it moment to moment to moment to moment. This is what's, this is what's arising. Remember to recognize it's anger, it's irritation, it's frustration, whatever, whatever. But when we think, I'm frustrated, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm impatient, I'm impatient, I'm judgmental, I'm judgmental. That's not going to work. It's when we recognize, oh, this is being known. This impatience is being known. Fear is being known. Desire is being known. Depression is being known. Then it's not me that is depressed, me that's fearful. We see that it's a, it's a visitor to the mind. It's a state of mind that has arisen due to causes and conditions outside of our control. And we can be aware of it, or awareness can notice it. 
So when we reframe our understanding, we, we understand that these torments are a natural activity of cause and effect. They're not a mistake. They're not your fault. They arise due to causes and conditions that you can't control. So because they are deeply conditioned, we must be patient. And because they are so tenacious, we need to be persistent, persevering in our effort. Right effort is a balance. It's that midpoint between being patient with the way things are and being persevering in our ability and willingness to recognize them. That's right effort. Whatever it takes to bear with, be patient, and to persist, persevere in recognizing, that's right effort. More than that, too much. Less than that, not enough patience. As Sayadaw again says, he says, try to recognize that defilements, these torments, are simply torments. They're not your torment. Every time you identify yourself with them or reject them, you only increase their strength. The wandering mind, not your problem. Your attitude that it should not be wandering, that's the problem. The object is not really important. How you view or observe it is. Thoughts are just thoughts. Feelings are just feelings. Yogis make the mistake of expecting or hoping for a good experience rather than being willing and trying to work with the torments, with the defilements. So, six months ago you saw the retreat, advertised retreat with the three of us. When you come to a retreat, when you think about coming to a retreat, do you think, nine days working with the torments, I can hardly wait. (laughs) That sounds exciting. I told you, our powers of self-delusion and deception are immense. (laughs) And we've been on retreat before. We know. Nobody has to convince you. People can be excused if it's your first retreat, thinking, (laughs) after that, you're responsible. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. So, we've heard the story. We've recognized this is an unskillful state of mind. We've relaxed our self-judgment. We're willing to own it psychologically. We're exercising some restraint. We're not acting it out, either subtly or grossly. And we've reframed our understanding. This is the very experience upon which to establish mindful awareness. The next step, the fifth step in working with them, is to receive their nature. Mindfulness, awareness, receives the nature of each moment's experience. Now, when you have these tormenting states of mind, they're unpleasant, right? They're all unpleasant. And so what we have to do is be willing to experience unpleasantness by choice, willingly, fully. I mean, we experience unpleasantness all the time when they're around. But we do it reluctantly, with a lot of aversion, with a lot of resistance, a lot of resentment. And all I'm saying is, if we can shift our attitude of mind from that deeply conditioned habitual, I don't like it, I want to get rid of it, it's bad, to, okay, this is what's happening now. It's just the way it is. Let me fully receive the present moment. What does it feel like? Can we feel into it? The story will get in the way. You know the story of 
blah, 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 blah. I'm so angry because blah, blah. I'm so impatient, blah, blah. I really want blah, 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 blah. And if we stay with the story, we just get caught up in the story. That goes on forever. It doesn't change. But if you, if you can kind of see through that smoke screen and actually feel into what this feels like, both physically, the physical sensations that are conditioned by this mental state, and you can feel in the heart what this mental state feels like, then you'll understand its nature. You'll begin to observe, you'll begin to experience with full awareness, oh, this is the nature of fear. Wow. Okay, this is the nature of desire. (laughs) Okay, this is the nature of anxiety. Now, we know anxiety is a really difficult, unpleasant state of mind. It's worse when we resist it. It gets magnified. Same as fear. Fear is really unpleasant. You know, you just want to jump out of your skin. You know, so I'm not saying, oh, this is so lovely. (laughs) No, it isn't. But if we're willing and we're interested and we understand this is the way, this is the path, this is the path, the gaining the knowledge of the nature of these states of mind. This is how we do it. Then, as, as, again, the Sayadaw Tejaniya says, use the appearance of these torments as an opportunity to investigate their nature. They are natural phenomena. They're not yours. Everyone experiences them. And if the causes and conditions are there, they will arise. If the causes and conditions are there, the law of cause and effect says that they will arise. One of the causes, or one of the conditions, that's necessary any of these obsessions to arise is unwise attention. Not paying careful attention. Okay? That is a necessary ingredient for the arising of these mental states. Now what happens when we start to be mindfully aware of them? We're being mindfully, we're paying attention wisely, carefully, what is the nature of this experience? What happens? The sixth step in working with them is to let their nature reveal itself. We've received it. Now it's going to reveal itself. And one thing that we will discover as soon as we are sincerely willing to open and feel into these unpleasant states. We know they're unpleasant. That's dukkha. We know that they're out of our control. That's anatta. And luckily, there's a third characteristic that we will see. They don't last very long. They don't last. Now, I can tell you that, but you don't know that. You won't know that for yourself until you try that. And once you do, and you see, these things don't last that long. I mean, you, and, and you can't fool yourself. It's not like, I'll pretend to be willing. No pretending. It's like, you really have to be willing to feel them. And you will have to feel them, briefly, before you'll recognize, before you'll realize, it's gone. It doesn't last very long. 
These understandings, they're unsatisfactory. They're out of your personal immediate control and they don't last very long. These are the three insights of Vipassana. Right? This is Vipassana. This is, the, this is the insight that Vipassana has to reveal. Other insights come and go. We have psychological insights. We have a lot of philosophical insights. Those are interesting, but they're not liberating. It's these three insights that free us from mistaken beliefs about ourselves and about these experiences. That's why we practice Vipassana. We can practice tranquility meditation. We can practice loving kindness. We can practice compassion. It's good to do that. It gives you temporary relief, soothes the heart, soothes the mind. That's great. It's good to know how to do that. And to uproot these habits from the mind, to remove these habits from the mind, we have to understand them and let their nature they're impermanent, they're unsatisfactory, they're out of our immediate control. Anicca, dukkha, nanata. We let these understandings, these realizations, free us from mistaken belief. That's why we practice Vipassana. And this is how we uh, under, come to understand and eventually uproot, not just suppress, but uproot these habits from the mind because our understanding changes. We have a different understanding of these visitors to the mind. We have a different understanding of our sense of self. We no longer are confused about the nature of these experiences. Insights like these are liberating. Liberating. They're not just kind of soothing. They're not just a temporary relief. They really can bring the mind, bring the heart to the place of deeply understanding things other than you were conditioned growing up in your family, in your culture. You know what? Your family and your culture, they did the best they could, but they're not aimed for liberation. <laughs> they're aiming for compliance, kind of like, get, get in tune with us. You know? If, you, if you're like, the more like us you are, the better you're going to get along with everybody. Yeah. You may not be free, but you'll get along. <laughs> when there is attachment or aversion in the mind, always make that your primary object of observation, Sayadaw says. Don't be led by greed. Take time to learn a little bit about it. Pay attention to its characteristics. If you keep falling for greed or attachment, you'll never understand its nature. Don't try to avoid objects or experiences. Try to avoid getting entangled in them with an unwholesome state of mind. So we're not trying to avoid life. Life offers many, many experiences, pleasant, unpleasant, and otherwise. We're not trying to avoid life. We're not trying to live in a box. We don't have to go into a cave. We just have to watch our mind and watch the mind's relationship to events. And when it tends to these default settings of aversion or attachment or confusion, name them. Recognize them. Name them. Don't judge them. 
Exercise some restraint. Reframe your understanding. This is the place to practice. Receive their nature. Realize they're unsatisfactory. They're out of control. They're out of your personal control. And they're impermanent. This is transformative. This is what liberates the mind from mistaken beliefs, is these insights. Now Saito is going to congratulate you for your practice today when he says, as long as you are aware of these torments, you're doing well. <laughs> right? You're all doing well. I know. You, had, you were aware of them today. We heard about them in groups. <laughs> in order to understand these torments, you have to watch them again and again. What can you gain from just having or expecting good experiences? I mean, we do want good experiences. You know, I'm, they'll come. Don't worry, they'll come. <laughs> if you if you understand the nature of these torments, they will dissolve. Once you're able to handle these torments, good experiences will naturally follow. Yay! Yay! <laughs> but don't be attached to them. <laughs> You know what they say, nothing like a good sit-in to ruin the rest of your day. Because <laughs> you start thinking, ah, oh, it's going to be like this for the rest of the retreat. It isn't. But, uh, <laughs> so remember, as Sayadaw again says, he said, remember that it's not you who removes these torments. You can't do it. If we could, we would. But it's wisdom does that job. And when you are continuously aware, wisdom unfolds naturally. Naturally. So let's sit for a moment and let these words settle into our heart. The mind by nature is radiant and pure. But it's because of visiting forces known as these torments, these kalesas that we suffer. But it's not you who removes these torments. Wisdom does that job. So thank you for listening to the Dhamma. There's a half hour for awareness in motion and at nine o'clock we'll have our last uh, scheduled group sitting of the evening and one of us will share some reflections on the day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.